Today, I talked to Herman Singh about his new book, Diavolution. Diavolution is an essential guide to winning in a digitally transformed post-pandemic environment. I do all my interviews using Zoom, and the quality is almost always good. But it so happens that the quality of my conversation with Herman is not the best, uh, even after recording the interview twice with Herman. So I do have a really high regard for Herman Singh, and his new book is excellent. So I wanted to bring you the interview. So I ask you to pretend that the quality is good, and relax and enjoy the interview. Welcome to the Exponential Organization podcast. I'm your host, Lance Pepler. The purpose of this podcast is to bring you thought leaders from around the world, giving input into how you and your organization can grow exponentially. This show is sponsored by IdeaStorm, a leading exponential growth consultancy that can provide services ranging from an hour advisory call with a network of over 5,500 consultants worldwide through OpenEXO through to the 10-week EXO Sprint. So visit www.ideastorm.co.za to find out more. Won't you do me a favor? If you like this podcast, won't you tell others about it? That would be fantastic. Now on with the interview. Today, our guest is Herman Singh. Herman Singh is the CEO of Future Advisory, an international firm specializing in digital transformation projects in corporates and startup acceleration. Herman is the author of Divolution. We'll be talking to Herman about this book. And Divolution is an essential guide to winning in a digitally transformed post-pandemic environment. Welcome to the podcast, Herman. Thank you so much for joining me. Um, Herman, can you give us a brief overview of your background and what led to the founding of Future Advisory? Uh, thanks, Lance. It's a, it's a pleasure to be here and hi to all your listeners. Uh, so, yeah, so I, I basically spent uh, 40 years of my life in corporate and also running my own businesses. But I spent 20 years in corporate building the industrial, industrial automated backbone of the country from mines and material handling, railways, airports, uh, you know, food factories, etc., power stations. I did that for 20 years. And for the next 20 years, I built the commercial backbone from internet banking to telecommunication systems to, you know, big chunks of the, of the internet uh, and media businesses. So basically, as I spent this time, I, I, I came to realize that actually there, there were a number of things that people were missing, which is really the, the fact that technology is really an enabler. And it's not so much that technology is changing, is that business has to change and people weren't getting that message. So that's the, basically the reason for creating future advisory to help businesses around the world basically come to terms with the fact that there's a fundamental shift in business that's happening. And it's more about business transformation than technology transformation. And that's really what Future Advisory focuses on. Mm, fantastic. We'll talk a little bit more about that uh, a bit later in the interview. But what I wanted to tell you, uh, talk to you about is the Divolution, your new book, and congratulations for writing it, An Essential Guide to Winning in a Digitally Transformed Post-Pandemic Environment. So first, Herman, what does the word divolution mean? Yeah, thanks. That's a good question. You know, and it's, it's always, uh, I guess, a, a choice as to whether one wants to create a new word in a world where there are so many words already. But I felt there was no word to describe what I refer to as digital evolution. And so I came up with this word divolution. And I like the word divolution because it basically describes the fact that what's happening in the world is basically a, a form of evolution. And it, the evolution's occurring at the level of business processes and even people's habits. And it's being driven by digital. And so this mm. digital evolution, I shortened to divolution. And, in, and it refers to the fact that the way in which the world is changing 
is through this process of devolution where processes are being basically boiled down to their essence and greatly simplified. And that's allowing for huge value chain compression. So for example, you know, the old process for buying a book was to jump into your car, drive to a mall, park your car, go into a, a, a look and listen, and then go and you know, look, look for the book or exclusive books, and then go and look for your book and then check out and then walk all the way back to your car. Today, I can sit in my pajamas, in my bed, switch on my, my iPad, go to my Kindle app, and it immediately recommends a book to me. I make one click, my phone pings, the payment's gone through, the book arrives you know, 15 seconds later. Mm. That's devolution. It's, mm. it's an Im Im immense process of value chain compression with huge benefits to both the producer of services and products and the consumer of, 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 uh, of, of those same products and, and services. Yeah, and, and I, I love the way in the book that you just give a full history of the evolution of IT and computers and digital. And it really, you can see why you're a professor and that you've gone through all of that. If, you know, people maybe should just buy the book for that history lesson that you give at the beginning, which is fantastic. And so, Herman, you use the metaphor of war a lot. And there's many yeah. comparisons and contrasts drawn between the history of warfare and the events unfolding around us today. Can you explain why you've used the metaphor of war uh, a bit more uh, in your book? Sure. Uh, well, firstly, the book's actually about strategy. Mm. And the word strategy is a Greek word that, that basically means the general's way. So this whole concept of strategy in business actually evolved from strategy in war. And so people don't realize this, but the concept of strategy, if you go back 2000 years ago, you didn't have a business strategy. You had a military strategy. And so, and so what happened is we took all the tools, all the lessons and all the, 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 the kind of rules that we developed in warfare and we merely transferred them into business. That's the first thing that most people don't realize is that the root of strategy is military, not business. That's the first point. The second point, again, that people don't, don't get is so many of the rules in business, not just the root of the word, but the root of the thinking of strategy actually evolved from military thinking and evolved into business thinking. Mm. The final point is, and again, people don't, don't realize this, but if you go and look at the history of corporations from General Motors to General Electric to even Siemens, you know, many of these, of these, uh, of these firms, if you look at Werner von Siemens, for example, and even the, the guys who formed General Motors, uh, and General Electric, many of them were, were military people. And so they brought military disciplines, military thinking, the entire command and control system of the model enterprise came mm. out of the Second World War and the way in which we allocated resources because strategy is a resource allocation problem. Well, I've just described warfare because warfare is a resource allocation problem. And so a lot of what happened in war was transferred into business. And most people are, are blind to the fact that the structure of an organization is heavily based on the structure of an army. And, uh, and it's, it's that that caused me to realize, actually, there's this underlying kind of common theme in the world that's invisible to most people. And I just wanted mm. to make that more transparent. Mm, no, definitely. Uh, and you can see it from a, a political perspective as well, where the battle between America and China, for example, is an economic one that they, they're doing there between the two different countries. Uh, TikTok, yeah. etc., Huawei, and and then you just look at the list of you know the top companies in the world, and they're all IT related at the moment: Amazon, Google, Microsoft, etc. So I wanted to ask you about a chapter of your book, and it's a very interesting chapter. It's called 
work, 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 work. And it's got an I. So it's not work, it's work. Yes. And I haven't heard yes. of the word work before. So it's a yes. new word. Is that a new word for you? Or is that a common word that's, that I haven't heard of before? If you go to look at Urban Dictionary, you'll see that work is actually a very well-used word. Okay. It's a word, yeah, work, it basically describes where people deliver small elements of output for remuneration across the internet. So if you uh, said, so for example, in publishing my book, I needed somebody to help me with the artwork. Then I needed somebody to help me with the copy. Then I needed somebody to help me with the editing. Then I needed somebody to help me with getting it published on Amazon. Then I yeah. needed somebody to help me, you know, so, so basically what I did was, I basically took the, 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 the technique of writing a book and I broke it down into almost a hundred different jobs. And each of these jobs was allocated to someone and each, of the, each person got paid by me to get that piece of, of work done. And we did the entire thing across the internet. Mm. And so today, this concept of work is actually, um, you know, perv pervading the world. Everybody's working for small, granular pieces of output and they, get, they earn a small amount of money for doing that. And this mm. concept of breaking work down into atomic levels and creating small jobs and people getting paid for those jobs, we refer to that at work today. So it's a global term, num number one. Number two, I'm a big Rihanna fan, and I love her song, Work, Work, Work. <laughs> so when I saw this, when, when I, saw this I, I have to use this as, as the title of one of the, one of the chapters. You know, call, it, call it writer's privilege. <laughs> oh, no, absolutely. Uh, the, the thing that we use is staff on demand. So staff yes. on demand and not... I tried to incorporate that as much as possible. And you obviously prolific on LinkedIn. I mean, most people know you uh, from LinkedIn and you put a post on the other day about how people are combating the, you know, being unemployed at the moment, that the, the work or the staff on demand is a viable option for them to pursue uh, yep. going forward. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Right. You know, I think, I think unfortunately the, the, the side effect of, of COVID and by the way, COVID had many positive effects. But one of the, the, the negative side effects, and there are many, was the destruction of formal employment uh, at scale. And I think many people have no option now but to enter this world of, I guess, gig economy, uh, labor on demand. But importantly, this concept of, of work where you're doing small amounts of work for dozens of people. You know, my entire business, for example, is based on serving clients in probably, you know, 40, 50 countries globally from Johannesburg. And, um, and basically, I, all I do is deliver small amounts of work effectively on a global basis. And one can run a global organization from anywhere in the world today. Thank heavens for the internet and the fact that COVID is breaking this up and forcing companies to think like this. Mm. But just as, uh, from a practical perspective, when you do work with Future Advisory, which we'll discuss in a, in a few minutes time, but do you charge more for it? Because surely it takes a lot more selling to do little bits of work. Or, so do you charge like double the amount that you would for longer engagements on a shorter engagement for work? So what I do is I, there are two pieces to this that are important. One is uh, the acquisition cost mm. and the second is the execution cost. So the acquisition cost can be high for the first piece of work. Now, my business model is quite simple. It's really I never market, right? Mm. I, I share a lot of information, but I never market. And what yeah. happens is people will be attracted by your intellectual thinking, they'll ask you to bid on something, you'll land a piece of work, and you almost always, if you execute that properly, will result in follow-on work. So what happens is the acquisition cost drops to zero. So mm -hmm. the first point is I've got a zero marketing budget. I don't really go and, you know, go out and find, I don't prospect. People are attracted to me. So I'm a bit of a lighthouse. 
in the sense people come to me, I don't have an acquisition cost. And then I get a lot of repeat business. I, I think 99% of my work this year is from people who gave me business last year. And that's mm -hmm. basically my business model. So acquisition cost drops to zero. Secondly, the fulfillment or execution cost is a function of two things. It's a function of the time you spend actually delivering it. And it's a function of the time spent preparing it. And the mm -hmm. thing is that the, the bulk of the payment is actually for my 40 years of experience. And you, you, can't, you can't charge for that. People will say, but why, am I, why is the rate so high? And I say, well, actually, you paid for 40 years of experience. So, so you've got to blend it. What you've yeah. got to do is say, look, my 40 years of experience is not going to get recovered over this piece of work only. It's going to get recovered over the next five years of work. But, you know, I need to make sure there's a premium built into my, my rate. And that's basically the, the model that I use. And it seems to work well globally. And I think, you know, right now, people are very comfortable because there's so much competition on price, right? Mm -hmm. That, you know, living in South Africa is wonderful because you, you can hopefully earn dollars and spend rands. And that's a great business model for anyone in South Africa who wants to build a business like that. Of course, that's, that's what I'm trying to do. And hopefully a lot of other people are trying to do as well. Um, Herman, yeah. before we get on to future advisory, just one other thing about your book. Um, can you give us an example of a legacy organization who's successfully diversified their revenue and some lessons that you could learn from it? Sure. But I think that, you know, the, the, the examples that, so I'll, I'll give you two examples, one from a company and one from an industry. Mm -hmm. The company example, you know, the two examples I like, I like talking about are obviously Naspers, you know, and the, the other example that's really great is a, a company called Best Buy. And, you know, Naspers basically had to move a, put a big bet because they were heavily invested in the printing industry. Naspers actually stands for Nacionala Press. In Afrikaans, it's a shortened version of Nacional Press, which means that they were a printing company. They printed newspapers and magazines. And then they expanded, you know, Kurt Becker is a real visionary whom I admire greatly. And he moved into, you know, initially forming MTN. People don't realize this. They were part of the team that invested in MTN. They were also part of the team that launched DSTV. And then they, they moved from, so they moved from print into telecommunications and then into satellite TV. I think it was the other way around, actually. It was print to satellite TV, then telecommunications. And then eventually... You know, um, uh, and people forget it was Anthony Rue that actually did this. He was a, the late Anthony Rue was actually the CEO of um, and he passed away now, but he basically moved to China and he did the investment into Tencent. It was, uh, you know, serendipitous, but it fundamentally transformed the business from a printing company into a company that basically owns one third of China's Facebook. Now that's an amazing story. Yeah, the, the, the other great story, you know, is, and, and you have to make the comment, you can't use NASPERS as a case study. The case study that makes more sense to me is Best Buy, you know, which is like our Dion Wyatt kind of, you know, uh, and incredible connection. It's that kind of business. But these guys were quite successful because they competed against Amazon very successfully by focusing on more value add when the customer walked into the store and basically giving the customer a contact person for troubleshooting and decision-making and training on the product and help with integrating and setting it up. And that focus on value add actually made uh, Best Buy a, a actually remarkably successful company uh, in, in the States against Amazon. And there aren't many companies winning against Amazon, but mm. Best Buy is one of them as a legacy company. Finally, mm. you know, as an industry, an industry that I think did this well is the music industry because they went from eight track tr tape to four track, you know, audio tape to digital audio tape to, uh, to uh, CDs, to DVDs, and eventually to, uh, you know, music downloads. And finally, all the way through to, you know, iPods and then 
iTunes, and then eventually music streaming. Now, that's an astonishing journey of maybe, you know, 50 years. And the industry went through, you know, metamorphosis after metamorphosis and modifying the distribution model, the media model, the sales model, the, you know, the revenue model, until finally they've landed in a place where they half the size they used to be, but twice as profitable. And, you know, I, lo I love the music um, industry model because it really shows you that industries can be transformed, but the entire industry has to transform. And that's exactly what happened. It consolidated, transformed, and it kept up to date, and nobody's re replaced the labels. And for me, that's a, that, those, those are great examples. Hmm. Yeah, thank you, Herman. Um, Herman, can you tell us about Future Advisory and, and what it does? Sure. Look, we, we've got three legs in the business. We, you know, I sit on the, on the board of a number of listed companies, hmm. um, and that's dynamic. I, I sometimes change boards. Uh, and, and basically, my role is to help corporates go through digital transformation. And I do that, as I said, through a board seat. And sometimes I will work as, a, as an advisor to the board. For example, I'm working with a very large, uh, with the biggest uh, telco almost in the world. And I'm working with their exco in the States, <laughs> developing new ways for them to think strategically about how to run a, t a telecommunication business. I'm doing the same thing with uh, the, the second largest telco in India and the largest telco in Saudi Arabia. Sure. Those are just some, some examples of the way that I work. I also do a lot of work helping uh, build capability in executive teams. Uh, I'm working with one of the large FMCG companies in um, Vietnam, a very large bank in, um, in, um, in Singapore, and a very large medical device company in Holland, and working with their executive teams to build uh, the ability to think about this and how to change thinking and how to implement new, new processes for innovation and digital adoption in those companies. And then finally, uh, I, I do really enjoy working with startups and you know, I'm, I'm both an angel investor and I, I, I sometimes do coaching work with startups because I do believe the future belongs to the startups and the small businesses. And you know, those of us that can really have to help startups because they are the foundation of the future, not just of the country, but I think of the world. And your work as a professor, is it with the University of Johannesburg or Graduate School of Business? What is your involvement there? So I'm basically a professor in practice at the, at the University of Johannesburg, and I'm an associate professor at the University of Cape Town. But I also work for another three or four business schools around the world. I'm an affiliate faculty member at Duke University, which is one of the top three business schools in the world. Uh, I also work with the Center for Creative Leadership and Eruditus in, in, uh, in the Middle East. So, I, you know, I've got a number of affiliations. And uh, basically, my, my, my role is really, you know, to, to take this 40 years of experience and distill it so that, you know, as many millions of people as possible can uh, learn this and um, adapt and accelerate and hopefully improve their lives. And I feel, you know, those of us that have this wisdom have a have actually a moral obligation to share this with as many people as possible. And so that's exactly what I'm doing through LinkedIn, the book, you know, the podcast, hopefully a YouTube channel in the future, but also a lot of the work that I do through Future Advisory. Sure. Fantastic. And I'll have all the links to Future Advisory and the podcast and the book in the show notes. Just about the book, it, it, it's a bestseller now on Amazon, isn't it? That's right. Yes. So, so in, its, in its genre, you know, to, to be a bestseller, you have to be in the top uh, the top 10% of all books sold in Amazon. So that's amazing for me. Mm. And in its genre, I think it, it, it actually got to number 21, which was amazing. I'm personally very proud of the fact that at one point, my, my book outsold Trump's book. So that was... <laughs> 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 personally, 
without making any political statements. But yes, it, so it, it, it is an Amazon bestseller and it's been up there now for, I think, since, since we launched the book. So it's almost two weeks now since we launched it. And it's, so from the day we launched it, it's, it's been uh, certainly in, in, the, in some of the best-selling books in, in Amazon. And, and you know, that, that's thanks to the readers and the messages that's been out there and the fact that they're loving it and telling their friends. So, you know, get the word out. I mean, if that thing can sit up there for as long as possible, that's fantastic. Well, super. Thank you. And hopefully a couple of people buy the book from this interview. Um, you're extremely generous with your time on LinkedIn as well. Is that how people can contact you on LinkedIn? Um, you're prolific. You post yes. every day, don't you? Yes, I, I probably post uh, five or six times a day. So, you wow. know, if you think about it, I put about 3,000 posts a year. So, you know, uh, and, you know, a, a lot of it's about sharing thinking and sharing. Sometimes I'm, I'm it's, someone said to me, aren't you just musing? And I said, sometimes it is musing. Sometimes it's amusing. And sometimes I'm actually taking a little gem of wisdom and packaging it and sharing it with people because they, they, they don't see what I see. Yeah. And, I, you know, I do have a very unusual view of the world because, I, number one, I work globally. I work in multiple verticals, but more importantly, I work in multiple horizontals. Nobody talks about horizontals. Everybody talks about verticals. I work in multiple horizontals. I see the world horizontally, not vertically. What does that mean? It means I look in terms of application, not just industry specific. So for example, the way that you would do marketing in Unilever in Vietnam is very similar to the way you would do uh, you know, sales in, um, in, of airtime at Verizon in the United States, for example. Very few people see that because everyone's trapped in an industry vertical. So because of the fact that I've worked for as long as I have, and I have an engagement in so many vertical industries, I'm able to share best practice across many processes. And I think that's something that I really enjoy sharing because you know, people get a lot of value out of that and hopefully can implement it in their, own, in their own lives. And it's not about trying to make money out of this thing, it's about trying to make the world a better place and making as many people successful as possible. Well, I get value from your LinkedIn post, so thank you for that. Um, and thank you for joining today, Herman. Thank you very much. Um, uh, well done on the book again, Divolution, an Essential Guide to Winning in a Digitally Transformed Post-Pandemic Environment. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much. Thank you very much, Lance, and all the best to, to you and your podcast series. Thank you. And I hope you, the listener, have found this as interesting and useful as I did. If you'd like to contact me, then please do. My email is lance at ideastorm.co.za and website is www.ideastorm.co.za. And please buy the book. I'll have the links and see all Herman's details in the show notes. So until next time, goodbye.